The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. So we're going to be continuing in our series, The Shape of Love, making our way through the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians. When my wife, Samora, was in her teens, she spent a year gallivanting in Denmark in a skipping school. No, all right, so what I really should say is that she spent a year on international student exchange in Denmark. This, of course, was before the internet age, uh, even though it was not so long ago. So she and her parents had to communicate using letters sent through the international post. Yeah, that's what we're talking about back then, yeah. So those letters needed to travel, of course, the thousands of kilometers between Denmark and Jamaica, and they took several weeks to arrive. So when, uh, when her parents received the first letter from her, what do you suppose was the first thing they were hurriedly scanning that letter to find out? Hmm? If she good, yeah, how she was doing, of course. Uh, she had never been so far away from home before, and they were eager to find out how she was managing. In a similar way, the recipients of this letter from Paul, when they received it, they would have been eager to hear how he was doing. News of the Apostle Paul in Rome had filtered to them in Philippi, and it was concerning. I mean, his opening greeting must have been reassuring as he spoke to them of his prayers for them and his joy in their partnership in the gospel. But they knew at the same time that he was writing from a prison in Rome, chained to a guard. So how was he doing? That's what the passage we're going to look at today in Philippians 1 begins to address. So please turn there with me. We'll be in Philippians 1 verses 12 through 18, or the first part of verse 18. This church had partnered with Paul in ministry. Out of concern for him, they had sent one of their own to Rome with financial support. They had been praying for him. Now he's going to update them on his situation. How was he holding up? Listen closely to the update that Paul penned to them from jail here in Philippians 1, 12 to 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. I have a question for you. You ever wonder if Paul became it? No, big and serious. <laughs> He's odd. Did you have any friends back in school, maybe in prep school, you know, you know that kid who just didn't seem to have the right emo em emotional responses to situations? You know, like, like the rest of the children are teasing them and they're just kind of laughing along with it. And you're like, brother, they're teasing you. They don't like you. They're trying to insult you. Uh, but, you know, the child at the moment, is, they're, they're just still happy-go-lucky and they don't seem affected by any of it. 
Paul can come across a bit like that kid. Why is he rejoicing here? He's in prison, and on top of that, he's being attacked by those who should be treating him like family. Most of us, without a thought, would entirely excuse Paul, ready to commiserate with him if he wrote, Guys, this is the worst. I'm just miserable. My back is sore, and I'm just hating every moment of this. And we'd excuse him because, if we're being honest, we think that's a reasonable response to difficulties. I mean, he's gone through a really hard couple of years. He's not supposed to be rejoicing. In these verses, we see what makes Paul so different. His perspective has been conditioned completely by the gospel. The reason he sees for rejoicing, even though he personally is going through difficulty, is the progress of the gospel. The truth is, the Apostle Paul can be a hard guy to relate to. Because he can seem so abnormal, so alien. We can hear him speak and we can say, yeah, brother, that's nice for you. You know, I'm happy for you. That doesn't make any sense to me, but that's good for you. But that's entirely the wrong reaction. Even though it doesn't say it directly, this passage is presenting Paul as an example to imitate. Paul is speaking to these brothers and sisters to inform them about what's going on with him. But what he ultimately wants them to do, and what he'll explicitly command later in this letter, is that they imitate him. Similarly, God wants, to use, God wants us to see Paul's attitude here. As strange and as outlandish and as far from our current experience as it may be, and recognize that here there is something to admire, a perspective to adopt, a priority to pursue. Here is what Paul shows us. When the progress of the gospel is our priority, we will see reasons to rejoice even in the midst of great personal difficulty. My family, joy is on offer here. And isn't that something you need? Resilient joy, counterintuitive joy, difficulty-defying joy is on offer here. But it's going to require a change in our priorities. As you'll come to see, this joy is not just for missionaries or full-time workers, but for all of God's people. When the progress of the gospel is our priority, we will see reasons to rejoice even in great personal difficulty. In this passage, we'll hear Paul first describe the progress of the gospel through his imprisonment and then his joy in the gospel despite personal attacks. And as you listen, listen to him as a friend who is inviting you to share in his joy. So let's look first at verses 12 to 14, which describe the progress of the gospel through Paul's imprisonment. This section we've entered is a missionary report. As Sheldon had explained in his introduction to this book, uh, this whole letter can be understood as a missionary report with a pastoral bent that expresses Paul's heart for his church and his awareness of their situation. In the verses we're covering today, Paul updates them on how he's doing. He'll go on in verses 19 to 26 to share his hopes and his expectations for the future. You can hear the warmth uh, he has towards these brothers and sisters in verse 12, uh, in addressing them that way as his brothers and sisters. Now, moments like this are common in Paul's writing, but I don't want the significance to be lost on us. Paul planted this church. He understood that when these people came to faith, they became a part of God's family and therefore a part of his own family. Leadership for Paul wasn't looking down on others from a position of seniority. 
Instead, he reached across as a brother, eager to serve them with his gifts, yet not afraid to instruct and exhort and correct. That perspective has affected how Sean and Sheldon and I see pastoral ministry, and we trust that you've felt that among us. Because of the close relationship and partnership in the gospel that these believers shared with Paul, they would understandably have been anxious about his well-being since they heard he was imprisoned. I mean, remember, Roman prisons were not a country club. So he sought to reassure them. But the way he went about reassuring them would have done much more than ease their anxieties. It would redirect their priorities. He didn't write to say, look, look, look you don't need to worry about me. You know, I'm surviving. I'm hanging in there. He says, rejoice with me. The gospel is progressing. When Paul says in verse 12, what has happened to me, the immediate event in view is his being placed under house arrest in Rome. But Paul didn't walk into the city of Rome and then get arrested. The story of how he got there is recorded in Acts chapter 21 through to the end of the book in chapter 28. And it really is great to read or to listen to. I mean, it's the stuff of movies. If we were to edit a trailer for, 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 for those chapters, the scenes would include a riot, an assassination plot, a nighttime escape with an armed escort, political intrigue, courtroom drama, years of confinement, angelic appearances, a voyage across the Mediterranean Sea, a storm, a shipwreck, a venomous snake. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Awareness of that helps us to recognize that being chained to a guard under house arrest in Rome was simply the latest hardship in a sequence of suffering for the Apostle Paul. Pay careful attention to how Paul connects his difficult circumstances with the gospel. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. His language is vivid. The gospel was advancing like an army even though he was chained up. And he's not saying that despite what I'm going through personally, the gospel is advancing. He's not, uh, he, what he was saying was that, the, it was that through my imprisonment, the gospel is advancing. He's not being stoic about his suffering. He's seeing his situation from a divine perspective. The most important thing to him is not his personal well-being. It is the progress of the gospel. And that priority gives him new eyes to see his circumstances. As most of you are aware, GFC is a part of a growing yet close-knit family of churches called Sovereign Grace Churches. This week I received our, our monthly missions newsletter. It, in, it included an update from our partners in Belarus. I'm going to read parts of that update at length. The church in Belarus has suffered a series of massive blows. Most of the world no longer allows flights into Belarus after the Belarusian government's violent crackdown on demonstrations. Russia and Turkey are the only nations that will fly into Belarus. The Russian invasion of, of Ukraine has turned life in Belarus upside down. The war has crippled Belarusian economy. Many companies have shut down or left the country. Job loss and inflation have reached frightening levels. Many churches have had a significant percentage of their members leave the country. New Covenant Church, which is seeking partnership with Sovereign Grace Churches, has lost two-thirds of their congregation this way. Pastors are overwhelmed by all these burdens, and they struggle to know how best to serve their congregations. Additionally, the government has warned churches against voicing any, any form of dissent. 
A few pastors have already been arrested. Yet in the midst of widespread fear and uncertainty, churches in Belarus are pressing into faithfulness. Sergei and Philip, who pastor the New Covenant Church, are ministering daily to the fearful, the jobless, and the displaced. People are coming to them to find hope in their despair. Pastor Sergei writes, I continue to receive messages from unknown people because of my online posts about God, the Bible, and Jesus, and the events going on. They are frustrated and looking for answers. Mission opportunities are everywhere. Mission opportunities are everywhere, he says. That's this text being lived out in front of us by our brothers and sisters in Belarus. They have eyes to see how the gospel is advancing, not despite, but through their circumstances, because the progress of the gospel is their priority. The report goes on to tell of Ben, a young Jewish man who was among the influx of people who have been coming to their church since all of this. He's now preparing for baptism. And then it says this, Sergei and Philip are not satisfied to share Christ within their own country. They have sent some of their few remaining members to plant a church to the Russian-speaking emigres in Turkey. Nikita, who is a leader at New Covenant Church, moved to Turkey with his wife in early May. Since then, several other church members have joined them. In addition, a church planter from Russia, who was, men who was mentored by Pastor Sergei, is now part of the church plant team. Guys, I'm so grateful for their example because of how hard it is for us to see Paul as an example. As I've already mentioned, it's so easy to think of him as otherworldly and superhuman in a class by himself. The Usain Bolt of the faith, or, or maybe the Caleb Taylor of the faith. You know, you, you, you're in the stands and you watch him go and you're like, yes! But Paul is writing to help us to run our race as well. He is pace setting. He's not sprinting off, leaving us, you know, for us to admire. He's setting the pace so that we can follow. He wants the Philippian church to imitate him in making the progress of the gospel their priority and to continue to preach it boldly in spite of opposition. He wants them to see how he views his story as a part of the bigger story of what God is doing in the world so that they'll be able to adopt his perspective about their own struggles and their own difficulties. He wants them, as he'll soon say in verses 27 and 28, to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by their opponents. Paul's phrasing highlights the irony of the situation. He's locked up and as a result, the gospel is running rampant in Rome. But don't miss what's implicit, God's sovereignty over his circumstances. This is where this precious doctrine meets us in the rough and tumble of our daily lives. Confidence that God is lovingly ordering all the details of our lives saves us from, from, being, from being sidetracked by success or from, from, from being swallowed by our suffering. It gives us eyes to, to look for what God is doing even in difficulties, so that we can live on mission. Paul saw and spoke of two varieties of gospel fruit in his circumstances in verses 13 and 14. The gospel was spreading to his captors and was being spread by his brothers. The guards that he was chained to in shifts became a captive audience. That, the, that fact that... 
sorry, the fact that the good news of Jesus was the reason for Paul's incarceration was spreading now. So all of the guards were hearing it and they were talking to one another. And one by one as they came and did their shifts with him, they were hearing the gospel themselves and hearing, so what are you doing here? But you don't look like a criminal. What, what's going on? And they were hearing that, well, yeah, I, I preach about Jesus. Jesus? Who's that? And Paul is just telling them the story of the gospel. And it's spreading throughout the ranks of Caesar's imperial guard and beyond to others in the, in the capital. At the end of this letter, Paul will pass on greetings from the saints in Caesar's household. There's so much packed into the phrasing of verse 13 in the original Greek. His imprisonment is in Christ. He's not in prison because Caesar rules the world. He's in prison because Christ rules the world. He belongs to Christ and his discipleship has led him to prison. Therefore, his chains are part and parcel of that discipleship. What's being at least hinted at here is that Paul sees his imprisonment as participation in Christ's sufferings. Do a quick mental inventory of what this year has been like for you so far. Or maybe reach back a little bit further to the last couple of years. What have been some of your major gains? What about significant losses? And what are the situations in which you've just felt stuck, like, like nothing is progressing here? You might feel like your current circumstances are just the latest hardship in a sequence of suffering. Or you might be very grateful to God for the blessings you're experiencing in this season of your life. You see, we're always living somewhere between those poles. But whatever our circumstances, Stephen Lawson gives this wise and direct counsel. You are not where you are by accident. You are where you are by divine appointment for the purpose of sharing the gospel. Do another inventory. Who have your circumstances connected you with? Receptionists and doctors because of frequent visits? A boss or clients or co-workers you'd rather not have to deal with? Family members because of some situation that's brought you closer? your lawyer or accountant, teachers or other parents through your children's school, those you exercise or dance or play sports with? Do you recognize that God has brought specific people into your life so that they will have an opportunity to hear the gospel? Mission opportunities are everywhere, even in and likely particularly in our suffering. Matthew Harmon presses this home for us. Follow this carefully. We can learn from Paul's example here of making it clear in our interaction with others that all that we experience as believers is experienced in Christ. That means that even the worst of circumstances remains under his gracious rule. Our actions and experiences are not self-interpreting. Let me comment right here. Sometimes you as a Christian are going through an experience and you are receiving joy from the Holy Spirit. And you know people are seeing that. But that's not self-interpreting. They won't know where that joy is coming from. So Harmon says, Just as Paul had to make it evident to those he encountered that his bonds are paradoxically evidence of his status of being in Christ, so too believers today must explain to others that their own experience remains under the gracious rule of Christ. This week I read another report. It was a Facebook post by Tim Shorey. Tim 
is the lead pastor of Risen Hope Church, a church in our family of churches, and one we're very close to because that's where I did my internship when I was in the States. So it's absolutely impossible for me to quantify just the impact that Tim has had on me, and he continues to be a dear friend. In fact, just six or so weeks ago, we were, we were continuing our conversation about where we're exploring the possibility of him coming down here next year to serve us as a family. He shared in his post that a few days prior, he had been diagnosed with cancer. The diagnosis came a few weeks after he suffered a mini-stroke. In the last couple of days, testing has revealed a large, aggressive, malignant tumor. Tim, in sharing the news, said this, It is into this moment that the Lord has given me this precious reminder. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are the work of your hand. He went on in his Facebook post announcing to the world his cancer diagnosis to teach, to share five precious truths that the Lord was just speaking to him about from that verse. Here are two of them. My God is my father and potter. This means that he loves me and is sovereignly molding my life, which also means that whatever he does will be right and good and needed and perfect and everlastingly wonderful, which is all the comfort I need no matter what comes my way. My father, as potter, knows how to make and mold. This means that he has a beautiful design in mind and that everything in my life has purpose and is shaping me to that end. Almost every day since that post, Tim has continued to write, not merely to share his journey, but to share his faith and confidence in Christ. He is exemplifying what it looks like to walk through cancer in Christ under the gracious rule of Christ. And when I read his post, it, it feels impossible for me to be anxious for him, even as I pray for him. Instead, I find myself deeply encouraged by him. The gospel is progressing because of his counsel. Through Paul's imprisonment, the gospel was spreading to his captors and being spread by his brothers. That second result is quite surprising. Paul says in verse 14, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Matthew Harmon helps us to understand the context uh, at this point in time. The early 60s were a tumultuous time in Rome as the emperor Nero grew increasingly unstable, proclaiming a message about a crucified and risen king named Jesus risked both social and per political persecution. Such factors nestled on top of the already risky proposition of identifying oneself with a prisoner. You see, the math doesn't add up. A prominent Christian leader is arrested because he is preaching Christ. And the response right in the city where he is in chains is a whole bunch of other Christians, not limited to leaders, but rank and file brothers and sisters, are more bold in speaking the word of Christ because their confidence in God has grown because of Paul's example of faithful gospel proclamation even while in prison. You see, when believers faithfully preach the gospel, it can have a dramatic effect on other believers. I don't know if you've been in a situation like that where, where I, I remember being in high school and, you know, I'm, I'm in first, second form and, you know, I'm a Christian, but I'm nervous. I'm just like, man. And then one of my friends who had been my friend before we got to high school and was with me in the ISF group and with me at church, was just kind of matter-of-fact about his faith. 
I was like, whoa. I mean, it helped me because then I just started being matter-of-fact about my faith also. Yeah. You know, I, I hope you're being affected by the stories of our brothers and sisters from Belarus. I hope you're affected by Tim Shorey's faith. But we need to be serving each other in this way in our local church. One of the ways we're meant to affect each other is to encourage each other in evangelism as we share what God is doing through us, even in small ways. It's fascinating that when Paul highlights what's happening in prison, he celebrates the good news of Jesus spreading among the guards. He's not actually focused on conversions per se. He sees gospel proclamation itself as a reason to celebrate. I'm trusting that we will have more opportunities to encourage each other and share stories of gospel proclamation, even ones in which we struggle and don't always get it right, and there doesn't seem to be a favorable response. When we grow in speaking about the gospel to each other and to unbelievers, the gospel is progressing among us. In all this, God wants to invite us into joy. In reflecting on these verses in Philippians 1, Tony Merida and Francis Chan point this out. Paul's words highlight how he treasures the gospel and thus maintains joy. So, here's my question for you. Do you struggle to be joyful? Have you ever thought that one of the reasons you might be struggling to be joyful is that you're resisting the fundamental design of your faith by not consciously living on mission? Don't be in shock if God means to re-engineer your life through this text in Philippians. Stephen Lawson echoes a theme that we saw last week. We must recognize that our life is not about being comfortable, but about Christ being made known. When we read between the lines here in Philippians 1, we see that the concern these brothers and sisters had extended beyond Paul's well-being to his reputation. Up to this point, Paul has given no hint of it, but in verse 15, he addresses what they surely had heard. Among the brothers and sisters preaching Christ in Rome were some who had ill will towards Paul. The apostle now speaks of this situation and gives us the opportunity to witness his joy in the gospel despite personal attacks. So that's our second point. His joy in the gospel despite personal attacks. Let's read verses 15 to 18 again. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. I, I want to help you to catch to, to catch the full weight of verse 18. So listen to how the scholar Gordon Fee translates it. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. All right, draw breaks. What does it matter? If there's one thing we don't check for as Jamaicans, it's bad mind. You know? It is clear because of the way it's immortalized in our music that we are a very envious culture that is very intolerant of envy. But you see, I don't even think it needs to be Jamaican to be shocked at Paul's what does it matter. How can Paul rejoice in the preaching of the gospel when it is clear that some are doing it with the goal of adding to his trouble? Why isn't he angry with those people? He doesn't deserve to be treated this way. But, but you know what's even more shocking? 
Paul just referred to these people as his brothers and sisters. Remember, that's how he spoke of those who had been emboldened to speak the word of Christ back in verse 14. He spoke of them all as his family, even though he now reveals that some of them are not treating him like family, preaching out of envy and rivalry, out of selfish ambition and pretense. No, we're not told in this text why these brothers and sisters were envious of Paul or saw him as a rival. What's clear is that they were acting out of impure motives, seeking their own goals, including making Paul's life more miserable, while pretending to be interested in the progress of the gospel. Now, if I were sitting with Paul and he was telling me this story, I'd want to say, Paul, brother, let me write Psalms for this, you know. Psalms for born bad mind. I mean, you know those Psalms that call down fire and one thunderball and pray that Jah will lick them with diseases? You know those Psalms? We call them imprecatory Psalms. I mean, and it's tricky territory. I mean, one of these days I'll preach one. Paul's response here is not because he's too pious for imprecation. He has strong words for opponents of the gospel later in this letter. He says in chapter 3, verse 2, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. In this case, he's speaking of Judaizers, people who would try to bring Gentile Christians who had believed the gospel under Jewish identity symbols, primarily circumcision. In Galatians 5.12, he thunders, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves, meaning cut it all off. Paul is not shy about imprecation. So why is he rejoicing at bad mind preaching? You see, despite their ill will towards him, in Paul's estimation, as Matthew Harmon summarizes, the message was correct while the motives for preaching it were not. These people were preaching Christ. So Paul doesn't regard them as God's enemies or his. The gospel affects his reckoning of who is in his family even more than their behavior does. In verse 16, he points out that there are other brothers who preach from goodwill and out of love for him. These brothers and sisters understood that Paul was in prison because, sorry, Paul was not in prison because he was unlucky or under God's judgment. He had been put there. He had been appointed for the defense of the gospel. It's as if God had taken him out of the forward line, but he was not to the game. His job was to defend the gospel at the seat of power of the Roman Empire. He would literally go on trial and argue for the good news of a crucified king. What we need to recenter in our view is Paul's priority. Paul lived and he would die for the progress of the gospel. So Paul doesn't rejoice only when those on team Paul score points. He rejoices even when gospel points are scored by those who are trying to compete with him. As Gordon Fee explains quite wonderfully, Paul can distance himself personally from the pain some would inflict on him, and that, despite their motivation, he can rejoice because the gospel is advancing. Paul's joy lies with his perspective, his ability to see every pirouette, both for its own beauty and for its place in the whole dance. He had long desired to come to Rome so that he might share with the Roman believers his understanding of the gospel and proclaim Christ to those who do not know him. Now he is there, although in circumstances not of his own choosing. But even so, neither are these circumstances a cause for complaint, but for joy, because God in his own wisdom is carrying out his purposes even through Paul's imprisonment. So here's the question. 
What are we to do with these verses, apart from encourage Paul to bone bad mind? Which, of course, isn't helpful. So a good place to start is by remembering that they are not first written to us. We can learn a lot by listening, as it were, over the shoulders of the Philippians. What's very interesting that, is that Paul is going to repeat some of the same terms he used here to describe these bad mind brothers in Rome in warning of similar issues in the Philippian church. He wants them to recognize their potential to fall into these same sins, though perhaps in different situations. His desire is that they grow in humility and resist the temptation to act like some in Rome. But he also wants them to strive for unity, even with brothers and sisters who do not always behave like family. Have you ever experienced that in church? Just the fact that we are together, God has called us together, but sometimes we don't treat each other like family? He wants them, in the midst of that, to prioritize the progress of the gospel, both among them and from them to others. That's going to give them joy in the midst of personal difficulty, whether from enemies outside the church or from brothers inside it. Now, I must confess that this passage led me to think about some of my past interactions and to examine my motivations and to ask myself some hard questions. When we were on the cusp of planting GFC, I reached out to a couple of pastors I knew who had planted churches in Kingston in, in years prior and asked if I could spend some time with them individually. Now, on the surface of my heart, my goal was to learn from them and to communicate to them through my posture and, and, and my words that I was a fellow laborer in God's field and not a rival. I wanted them to know that as far as I was concerned, GFC was not going to be in competition with their churches. But the truth is I was tempted in those conversations. I found myself envious of the successes they spoke of. That manifested itself as skeptical thoughts. No, man, so many people can't be coming to faith under your ministry. No, man, there has to be some sort of over-reporting that you're doing. Okay, maybe you can bring them in, but can they mature under your care? Particularly with your theological emphases or lack thereof. Like weeds that I was struggling to get rid of, these thoughts just kept growing in my heart. Separate and apart from those conversations, we experienced much indifference and some hostility in getting started. There were people who did not trust us because of how they understood or misunderstood our theological convictions. Knowing that added to the pressure I felt coming out of those conversations with those other pastors. Grace Family Church needs to be wildly successful. Our convictions, our methodologies, our priorities must be validated by vast and obvious growth. People need to be coming to faith in droves and evidently maturing in their faith. And all of that was the wrong motivation. You see, it's easier than you might think to preach Christ out of envy and rivalry and self-serving ambition. I still feel that pressure from time to time for demonstrable success, that desire to prove that others were wrong and show that we are the real deal. And I continue to persist in repenting when I find myself thinking that way. Focusing instead on rejoicing in what God is doing among us. Rejoicing on what, in what I see God doing in you. I think that this passage going forward is going to help me to fight temptation. It's helped me to think of some diagnostic questions that I, I, I hope might be useful to many of you also. So here are some questions to think about. 
Can I celebrate when the gospel, that is the right message declaring salvation through faith in Jesus, is preached by people who I think are wrong about a catalog of things? Can I celebrate it? Can I celebrate when it is preached by ministries that I believe are unbalanced? Can I rejoice when other believers who do not like me or trust me are faithfully and fruitfully proclaiming Christ? Am I envious of their successes or happy to see people coming to faith in Jesus? Do I rejoice more when others are in agreement with my favorite secondary and tertiary doctrines than I do about gospel agreement? Am I skeptical about the progress of the gospel when it's not happening through my theological camp? You see, motives matter, you know. Knowledge and wisdom matters. Preceding this passage in Philippians, Paul prays for these believers to grow in love, knowledge, and discernment so that they'll be able to approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless at the day of Christ. Doctrine matters. Because of the nature of God's self-revelation, we are absolutely served by getting our theological ducks in a row. But we are not saved by that. As serious and as important as these things are, they are secondary and less urgent than the only message that can save. And if you're listening and you are not a believer in Christ, we want you to hear the only message that can save. We want you to hear of King Jesus who rules the whole world. This morning we read of his preeminence. We read that through him God is reconciling all things and we want you to get caught up in that reconciliation so that you don't live as an enemy of God, living by your own wits and wisdom and just seeking to please yourself. But you come under the gracious rule of Christ with a hope and a future in him and meaning in everything that you do know. So if you need help understanding that, please talk to me afterwards. Please reach out to us. Paul is not unconcerned about wrong motives in preaching the gospel. You see, his instructions that follow in this letter prove that. But he refuses to make that his first concern over and against the preaching of the gospel. For Paul, the proclamation of Christ comes first and is so important that he is able to overlook things that are broken when Christ is being preached truly. As Meridan Chan encouraged us, let us rejoice when people are proclaiming the gospel, even when we find things about the messengers questionable. A habit that I picked up a few years ago and need to persist in is steering conversations that I have with believers I meet around the place uh, towards the gospel. It can be as simple as asking, what particular aspect of the gospel has been meaning the most to you these days? Or, how have you seen God working through the gospel through your church? Maybe among unbelievers or among believers. It's interesting because when I have done this, I've often heard reasons to rejoice and felt a greater kinship with those who are my family in Christ. One more confession this morning. I'm a pretty horrible alumnus. And it's not that I don't appreciate the schools that I went to. I, I benefited greatly from them and I'm grateful. But it's like my life and my headspace is so full. I'm grateful for them, but I don't particularly want to be involved with any of them right now. No, that's okay when it comes to former schools, but it cannot be the case with the gospel. The gospel has no alumni association. That's because we never graduate from the gospel. We never exit on the other side as grateful beneficiaries of God's saving love, ready to move on with the life that we want to live. Instead, we journey deeper into Christ, understanding more of his heart for us and his heart for others who have not yet trusted him. 
Jesus, brothers and sisters, wants us to have resilient joy, even when our lives are difficult. Some of you need to hear that. Jesus wants you to have resilient joy, even when your life is difficult. That can seem so impossible based on where you are now, but God's Word is at work in us. One of the ways we receive joy is by being involved in the progress of the gospel, personally and through partnerships with others. I want to recommend that you sign up for our missions newsletter. We will provide the links for you through social media or something like that. We'll find a way to let you know how you can sign up for that. I have found that each month as I get that news, I rejoice in what God is doing. It takes me out of my world and my situations, and I realize, wow, God is at work in the nations. You see, when what God is doing through the gospel matters more to us than our circumstances, we will have joy. This passage is meant to put us deeper into our continuing relationship with the gospel for the praise of Christ, for the salvation of others, and for our joy in Him. When the progress of the gospel is our priority, we will see reasons to rejoice even in great personal difficulty. The good news that, saves us, that saved us must become the theme of our lives and the joyful song on our lips. Paul shows us what this looks like and how glorious it is as he celebrates what God was doing through his suffering. Because he was imprisoned, the gospel was spreading to his captors and was being spread by his brothers. He rejoices even though some do it in an attempt to increase his suffering because Christ is being preached. That's what matters to him more than his reputation or his freedom. Such a perspective is not normal. It is not natural. We cannot manufacture it. It is supernatural. But therein lies our hope. We can be confident that God is able and desires to transform our hearts with the same power by which he brought us to life spiritually, reshaping our perspective and our priorities for his glory and our good. Let's ask him to do that right now. Let's pray. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.